Hello and welcome to Page to Frame, the podcast where guests pick a book that's been turned into a movie, we read the book, watch the movie, and then talk about them. This episode is a little special because I have two friends who wanted to cover the same book, so I sat down with both of them to discuss Catch-22, the book written by Joseph Heller and the film directed by Mike Nichols. My guests today include Tyler Delvecchio, a writer and a longtime friend of mine from all the way back in high school, and Garrett Hughes, a film major, director, and writer at Drexel University, who has worked on a couple of film sets with me. This book meant a lot to both of them, and today we're going to talk about why. We'll also go into the history of the book, why we all felt some disappointment with the film adaptation, and what we hope the upcoming adaptation does better. Thanks for listening. Cool. So I'm here with my friends. This is the first episode where I'm going to have more than one guest. So I'm with my old buddy Tyler Del Vecchio and my friend Garrett. Tyler and I went to school together. We've done some screenwriting together. Tyler's a writer. Garrett worked on a project that I did a long time ago. He was a gaffer and now he's making his own films. And big stuff. So guys, thanks for joining me. No problem. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, Tyler, you were the one who picked this book out when I asked uh, if you wanted to be on this podcast. What made you choose Catch-22? It was a book I read in high school, just for, like, summer reading. But I, I would cite it as the book that, like, actually, like, reeled me into reading. It was one of the first books that I read, like, for school that, like, I enjoyed. And uh, and notably that I thought was funny, which is a big deal to me. So, I... I wanted to revisit it after so long. I just graduated <laughs> with an English degree, and uh, it's like my first return to reading for pleasure again, which is nice. Nice. And Garrett, you commented on my Facebook Goodreads update when you saw that I was reading this book. <laughs> I mentioned that it was your favorite book, and you've been rereading it for a long time. How long have you been like rereading this book for? I think it was freshman or sophomore year of high school that I got like a reading list like same I had to read it for school and my dad was like this book is really really funny and also like you I like had never read a funny book like I read books that I guess that were intended to be but like I never found myself actually laughing out loud while reading a book until I read this and so then any vacation, any time period that I would want a book, I found myself like always returning to it. So I must have read it like five or six times, maybe more by now. But I usually read it at least once or twice a year since like sophomore year, and I'm a junior in college now. So yeah, like six six years now, I've been rereading this book. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive. So my background with this book is I've only read it once, but like you guys, I also picked it to read on my sophomore summer reading list, but I didn't read it, <laughs> I noted it, and I wrote an essay based off that. So yeah, I'm glad that you picked this out and it gave me the opportunity to actually read it. It was a little bit challenging for me back when I was 15, so I read through the first couple chapters, I was like... I don't get it. <laughs> There's other things I could be doing right now. <laughs> I'm going to go do that. But since I actually had the chance to read it, I was pretty blown away. I'm actually really impressed that you guys read it when you were 15. <laughs> it's a pretty heavy book for like a 15-year-old to read. Yeah, it didn't um, make much sense at the time. It's true. Yeah, it's very hard to follow for it, a kid. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's on chronological order. It jumps all over the place, and it's like really confusing at points. Yeah, and then it just gets heavy like dark heavy. and that's true yeah that's yeah. true absolutely yeah the last six chapters are like intense yeah <laughs> so your background with the movie 
You hadn't seen it before, right? No, Gary? yeah, I never. I wanted to, but I had never seen it. And then you asked me to do this, and I was like, "Oh, hell yeah!" So then I finally got around to it. Yeah, yeah. And Tyler, you had seen it. Once? No, I hadn't seen it before. It was part of the reason why I, I chose the book because I, I knew there. Well, I I knew there was a movie that existed, but I never had like a reason to watch it until you know this gave me good enough motivation. Okay, good. So none of us had seen the movie before. We'll get more into the movie later, but what were your first impressions of it? As someone who really liked the book, I was, like, really disappointed, but also, in the back of my head, like, I respected the effort. Like, I was very much, like, I see everything that they were trying to do, and I, like, understand the monumental task of making this book into a screenplay, and then translating that screenplay to making a film. So, I have sort of a respect for it. The movie itself and the effort, but standalone, just judging it by itself, it's not very good. Okay. <laughs> in my big, in my opinion, Tyler, what do you think? I think the movie's strengths lie in like the uh, in a lot of like the the short uh, sketches that like the book tends to like structure itself into. It feels mm-hmm. very much like a who's on first kind of like sketch mm-hmm. where people are like joking back and forth. And actually. A large part of me rereading this was through audiobook, which kind of like eased me into the movie because it was nice to hear the lines read aloud. It, it plays really well out loud, so I think those parts are really good. And I do think the uh, towards the end end of the movie, or end of the, and also end of the book, when the book becomes more chronological, the movie also gets a lot more uh, like easier to. I wouldn't. I don't want to say easier to follow up because the book's also difficult to follow at times, but. I think that's when those like are the two times the movie hit on the book the best. Yeah, I would agree with that, and it's interesting because the movie does follow a more chronological order overall. I would say, but mm-hmm. it's still so mm-hmm. choppy and weird, mm-hmm. and yeah. jumping all over the place. Mm-hmm. I like the movie, but I can't imagine watching it without reading this entire book first. Yeah, I, I agree. Think I would understand. Yeah, yeah. I and I guess that's. I wish one of us had seen the movie first because. Mm-hmm. I would want to know that opinion, because like you said, it's like, it didn't make sense to me in the way that I always knew what was going on, but that's only because I read the book, and the choppiness of it is, like, the book's strength, but it's the movie's weakness, because it's just, it's so hard to keep track of, and you, and as we're saying, yeah, like, if you read the book, you understand that's what the book does, but the movie, you can't. No movie, I feel, around that time period was trying to do, like, completely out of chronological order, like they were. And so that's... They didn't have anything to go off of. Mm -hmm. No, it was nuts. (laughs) 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 We'll jump back into the book now. What I like to try and do on this podcast is summarize the plot of whatever it is that we read and watched. But um, that's kind of an endeavor here. So do either of you want to take a crack at... Giving a quick summary of Catch Twenty Two. Uh, you you honestly can you honestly just have to be like what it's the generalized what it's about, but you can't really. It's hot. It's mm-hmm. because it's a it's about like a dude trying. It's about a soldier in World War Two trying to escape the wall by any way he can because he just like doesn't want to die, and it kind and like. And that's a super serious thing that they make light of, and the and so the whole book just follows him and his endeavors to get out of the wall, but also try to rationalize 
all of the reasons surrounding that he does. And then, yeah, I guess that would be the best way I could summarize it. It's tough. <laughs> and then, in addition to that, it also kind of introduces you to everyone that he's in camp with and all his superior officers. So it's not even just about this one guy. It's about all these soldiers and kind of a glimpse into all of their rationales for why they live the way they live. And that's kind of, like, the hard part about summarizing the book, because it's a lot less about, like, the plot and, like, what happens and mm-hmm. more about just the people in it. Yeah. And it's kind of, like, a huge, like, part of the book and, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, one line, like, what difference does it make, like, repeated over and over again, like, throughout a lot of scenes. I guess the book's more concerned with the individual in the war than it is about the war itself, and I, I think that's a pretty clear if you read the book, too. Mm-hmm. Or watch the movie, for that matter. I think the movie communicated that pretty well. Yeah. One thing I think we can do to help give a, a glimpse of what this book is about is if we just explain what Catch-22 is, or at least give one of the early examples of it. So do one of you guys want to try and explain Catch-22? I took the last one. <laughs> sure. So the idea of Catch-22 is when the main character, Yosarian, tries to get grounded from going on a combat flight missions, the doctor says, I can only ground you if you're crazy. And uh, Yosarian says, well, I am crazy. Everyone says so. And then, the, to which the doctor responds, then all you have to do is ask me, and you won't have to fly the missions anymore. And then Yosarian's like, I'm asking you, don't make me fly the missions anymore. And he's like, I can't. That means you're not crazy. Because any sane person wouldn't want to fly a combat mission and risk their life. That's the catch-22. In order to get out of the situation, you have to play yourself into the situation. Yeah. So that is the main example, and then they just they keep having other logical fallacies throughout the book and referring to it as Catch-22. Mm-hmm. And then Catch-22 is also just this weird overall bureaucratic nonsense where the superior officers can basically do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because the phrase Catch-22 has become this logical phrase that a lot of people are familiar with without actually being familiar with this work. <laughs> So uh, I think one of the most classic examples relevant to real life is like, I need a job, but I can't get a job without experience. I can't get experience without a job. Mm. And people will say, that's a catch-22. It all comes from this book and this movie, but mostly the book. (laughs) So we've all talked about why we read it, why you guys chose to be on this episode for it. Um, But can we go a little bit into more about what it is you love about it? Uh, it's pretty clear that we all have positive feelings towards this book, whereas some of the other episodes were done strictly because my guest hated the book. <laughs> what did you guys like about this book? I think the absurdity of it, I'm uh, and the and the dark humor. I'm huge dark humor guy. Like that's I'm, I'm I go to school for film, and like that's what I try to make a lot of my movies, my short films. Um, they're almost all dark comedies, and so that definitely was huge for me. Um, and I just love how absurd they make it, but like never, never for the sake of absurdity. Never like just for being like this is off the walls. It's always like relating to a part of our lives that like are absurd. Like the idea that war is absurd, and the idea that like bureaucracy is absurd, and like. They just extrapolate that to the most extreme level. And I just think that's like just such, and he just does it. Oh, every chapter he does it over and over and over again. And like every time he does it, you 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 think about that absurd thing more. And I just think that's like a really, really fun, interesting way to explore 
themes and topics. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think the book's just hilarious, and part of that is just because how far they take the joke. Like, um, the, the first example I can think of is uh, the scene where, uh, in the movie Hungry Joe, but in the, oh no, Hungry Joe's killed. and Yeah, the scene where Hungry Joe is killed in the movie, or where Kid Samson's killed in the book, when the plane uh, flies down and chops him in half and then flies into a mountain, Doc Danique is in that plane, and this is kind of like a part where the movie missed it, because they're trying to condense it, but in the book, it's like, Doc Danique is declared dead, his wife receives life insurance payments because he's dead, everyone hates him because they blame him for the missions getting raised again because he died, and he's, and he's, and, uh, in the movie, they, uh, Yosarian brings it up, he calls him a zombie, I can't remember if he calls him that in the book, uh, at the end, but, uh, I, I just, I just love that they, uh, when they make a joke, like, it's not like a joke in the book. It's just like part of reality and it <laughs> yeah. just keeps it going. <laughs> yeah. The way they bring it to those extremes is really, really interesting. I think a big part of what I liked about it and in terms of that absurdity and how it helps with the themes is that those themes that they talk about are still relevant today, even though it was written in the fifties and it's about the forties. None of that stuff goes away. Like yeah. it's all this existential fear and then combined with, how terrible bureaucracy is, which is such an interesting combination. Another thing that I really liked about it personally was just the the camp out aspects, just a bunch of guys at camp. I, uh, <laughs> I was a Boy Scout. And so going through the, this cast of characters and the dumb nuances they had, that just reminded me so much of like being in a tent with the guys being like this guy's so weird. I love him. <laughs> He's weird. Also, I guess a small note that I love. I love the character names. Uh, I still do. I loved them when I was a kid, and I, <laughs> I still love them now. Uh, listening to the audiobook, there's a character in the book whose name is just like a dash uh, uh, de coverly. But in the uh, yeah. read out loud, the narrator read it mm-hmm, de coverly. <laughs> it took me a couple of times before I realized who he was actually talking about. <laughs> I couldn't remember anyone with a name spelled that way. Um, what kind of accent or speaking style did the audiobook have? Um, he adopted like accents for characters who were like Italian, uh, like Luciana, and uh, but spoke in a very like. Uh, you, the voice he gave you, Sarian, was very like Ophi, which I actually really enjoyed. Uh, Danica sounded like a drunk. Uh, I actually like Danica's, uh, yeah, I like his depiction in the book a lot more than I did in the movie. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, they definitely flattened him out a lot in the movie. Uh, <laughs> like, his Hallmark line isn't even in the movie. Like, when he always goes, uh, well, wh- well, what about me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like in the book, he's such more of a, uh, he's like, he's like, like, he's like, like that asshole friend we all yeah. have who's like totally selfish and like, done, like, is the type to like, I'd be like, yo, can you Venmo me like two fifty? Like he's like he's like that guy, but in the book he's so much more endearing because, like I said, he's the friend everyone has because yeah. like he's still there for the Osarian, he's still there for the other guys like mm-hmm. to talk to. He just doesn't care overtly. Like, yeah, but like that, like that asshole friend. Every time you go to like vent to him, it's somehow still about him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and the and in the movie, like you said, he's just so flat and he's very he's just much more like uncaring and callous. And like I feel like that's where the book and the book has. I mean, it's it's a feature. It's a feature movie versus like a novel, and it's obviously the novel can go so much more. And so you have to like forgive those mm-hmm. types of transgressions. But still, like I feel like he was one of the characters they missed the mark on because I like I love the characters in the book. They're all each unique, and you can find someone you know that's like that guy. <laughs> but like I said, they take it to the extreme. You know, you know someone like this. But the book is an extreme version <laughs> yeah. of it. What would you say are the overall themes of the book? 
definitely definitely Bioakosi. That's a huge one. It's obviously an anti-war book. I guess kind of a, a big one for me when I first read it, and that and it like was a big philosophical shift for me when I first read this book was kind of just like the futility of efforts sometimes just like it just doesn't matter <laughs> like it's just like some things you you do in life just you do them because that's how it's done and you can rage and be as upset as you want about it but you're not changing it mm-hmm. and like that's a really interesting and they took it to an interesting direction because they're like you can you can actively try and maybe one day you'll be successful but until then you're just gonna be at this random purgatory of just absurdity and asking why is this happening mm-hmm. yeah, and, and the bill on like the whole uh like futility to like argue against bureaucracy uh that's that was one of the most like, striking things to me when i first read it as a kid was at the end of the book when he decides that it's just the only way to get out of it, uh, the catch-22 the only way to get out of the bureaucracy is just to not participate in it yeah. it's just to leave like it's like if i'm taking a deal to like get what i want I'm not going to get what I want because what I want is to not be a part of any of this. Yeah. And I, I just, and I, I, yeah. And it's just, uh, I mean, as far as that theme goes, yeah, I think that stuck with me the most in terms of a philosophical shift, as we put it. Yeah, I would agree. What did you guys kind of get out of it after reading it? How you said it was like a shift for you. Definitely before. So I come from a very like conservative area and was raised very conservatively and with like kind of the mindset that like up until up until my senior year of college I was going to go to school for engineering and I kind of was raised in this very like like everyone has a task and everyone is going to go on and you you do this thing and you just keep getting this checklist and that was for me what I got out of it was the first time that I read something and I mean, I read a lot when I was young, but like this was the first book with such a strong message that I read it and thought, okay, I have to be more selfish sometimes. Like you have to be more selfish in life to get what you want sometimes. And like you said, you sometimes you just can't participate. That's how it works. Like you, if you really want something sometimes, you're just going to have to leave all of it and just let it go and just, yeah, just let it go. And so... I think for me, the biggest thing I got out, my philosophical shift went from being much more, I have an orderly by the book way I want to do things to being much more, nothing I do is really going to matter or change anything, but in a really good way, like not in a bad way, in a, in a way that that's, there's, there's a freedom there mm-hmm. to accept that you can't change things. And that's that, that sort of freedom was definitely much more opened up to me after I read this book. And I got a lot more into um, into dark humor type books, into watching films. After I read it, I was like, I need to absorb more. I need <laughs> to I need to read and watch more things to inform my life philosophy. I think my biggest takeaway from the book is less about life philosophy and more just about um, actually just like my drive to write in general because this is the first time where i read something and it was, and i realized i can write stuff or not just me but like anyone like things can be written that are both funny and actually tell you something because before like i always was you know I, I i always goofed off as a kid and i was told like you know there's a, there's a time to joke around there's time to be serious and, uh, and it was nice reading this book because it's like you can be both you can really do both and uh that's definitely true yeah and and 
like you said, like after you read it, you wanted to like read more and you like and you watch more. I also had that kind of like brat frenzy where yeah. I wanted to read more like satirical. So what kind of stuff would you guys say you read or watched after reading this that are in a similar vein that you would recommend? Hmm. That's a pickle for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think this is similar. It, it's only similar in in the way that uh, I just think it's also funny. Uh, just Vonnegut. Just I, I also in high school I, we read a short story, uh, Harrison Bergeron, and I loved that. And it was and that, I that led me to more Vonnegut. And for me, it always like pulls back to Catch Twenty Two in terms of things that I find both funny and like uh, I don't want to say intellectually stimulating because I don't want to be a douche. But... <laughs> <laughs> That, yeah, um, yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna straight Jack you answer because I that, that as soon as you said that, I was like, of course. Like after I read this book, I I searched online. I was like, books like Cash Twenty Two, and, and it was like, and it was like literally anything by Kurt Vonnegut. Just read it, and I was just like, okay, cool. And I got so into Kurt Vonnegut that I still, I still love him. Um, and like like uh, Galapagos, I read Galapagos is a great book by him. Um, I feel like that's. It's one that's not mentioned as much when people mm-hmm. talk. Him. It's still I one agree. of his bigger ones and still one of his really great ones. But that was that I also read that immediately after. And that's very much in the vein of just being kind of like, like hey, like shit's just out of our control. Like that that's that was what my main like from that time period was my was my main takeaway from everything. And Kurt Vonnegut is very much that way, too, that like the absurdist kind of this shit doesn't matter sometimes mm-hmm. like you just gotta let it go mm-hmm. another one that uh i think about uh, miss lonely hearts by uh, nathaniel west i think uh is much in the same way it's a little less funny i still think it's pretty funny it's it's definitely a very dark humor book but uh very much uh existentialist like you know mm-hmm. like doesn't matter like that kind of stuff, very atmospheric, which I feel, uh, like, like you said, the, uh, the book has a lot going for it in that whole campy (laughs) environment that it builds. Yeah, I love that. I guess, trying to think if there's anything I can add. I like, um, Moral Oral is really dark and funny. (laughs) I made you watch that. I love Moral Oral. (laughs) Yeah. And it was a show, that's a show that I actually, uh, I'm a little tied to as a kid because I would see commercials for it late at night and I would think it's uh, horrible. It looks it looks terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's hideous <laughs> and it's ugly and I didn't want to watch it. But yeah, you you were like, no, it's actually really good. And I watched it and I agree. It was really good. <laughs> so good. How much do you guys know about the author? Barely anything. To be Not very honest. much. The, the copy of the book I began reading had a little uh, like introduction about the author, but I kind of skimmed through that. I don't actually know too much. I never researched into it. No, up until like a year, I never read Fords, and I kind of regret that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like it was exactly literally like it was literally like a year ago that I actually started reading them. I had to read them when I got to college because, like, in high school, they just don't make you read them, and they don't talk about the author ever. But in college English classes, like every single cl- every single book you talk about, you're like, all right, before we even read the book, <laughs> here's who the author is, and. Uh, yeah, I never got to do that with this book. Yeah, I feel like reading the forwards does help you get more out of the book. And it also helps me get into the right mindset for a book, too. I have a really hard time picking up books for the first time. Yeah. Um, so the main things you guys need to know is that his parents were immigrants from Russia, Jewish immigrants. He was in the Air Force in 1942. He was 19 years old, and he flew 60 missions at the Italian front. So there's like a vaguely autobiographical aspect to this book. But when he came back, 
He described the war as fun in the beginning. He got the feeling that there was something glorious about it. And then he said later he felt like a hero. People think it's really remarkable that I was in combat in an airplane and I flew 60 missions, even though I tell them that the missions were largely milk runs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that is really interesting because I think that especially especially during World War Two, I mean, like, like it's probably the last American war that, like, anyone can be like, yep, yeah. we, we did it, we did something good, we, there like, was it was, war. like, no we one, won. No, no one, no one can really debate, like, was, was fighting fascism bad, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess nowadays there's people can, <laughs> I guess nowadays there was a debate, it took them, like, 70 years, but, <laughs> caught up to us, <laughs> but, like, it was the last, like, it's, it's, like, like, was the last war that, like, everyone, if you, if there's a World War Two veteran, it's, like, automatic respect it's like okay like like it's it's the what's it called the greatest generation the the some the bravest or something oh um, yeah, yeah i think yeah and, <laughs> and like they gave themselves and, <laughs> and like i so i feel like that's such an i so i feel like it's so funny that this book takes place during world war ii especially reading it now in contemporary times where it's just like even back then he was still like this is stupid maybe like the objectives of the war can be like debated but like the idea of war in general and that like this is going to help anything in the long run is just like a question he brings up a lot and it's funny that he was a world war ii veteran that brings that up because of how it's viewed in history mm-hmm. yeah it's very strange to like see this vehemently like anti-war like novel in world war ii just because like you know germany like nazi germany it's like now the like the uh epitome reference point for like evil and bad yeah. stuff that people <laughs> always like revert to whenever they're arguing and in this book it pretty much like never even it barely ever even considers the war is ever worth fighting it's, it's just we fight it because we're trying to win or we fight it because there's no good reason <laughs> yeah it is interesting that he's like this book is such vehemently anti-war but these two quotes that i just read off of his wikipedia page don't seem to be that anti-war so i think he must have like Obviously, he felt fear during the war, but it seems upon reflection he kind of picked up these anti-war beliefs. After getting back, he studied English at SoCal and NYU and then got a master's in English from Columbia. He was a Fulbright scholar. He taught composition and he worked at Time Incorporated. So he uh, he was a real smart guy. <laughs> he was a real good writer. Yeah, really good. A few accomplishments. <laughs> He's married twice. And uh, two kids. Uh, the movie rights for Catch Twenty Two, though, and various other royalties from the book made Heller a millionaire. And wow! Being right. a millionaire back then, he didn't have to. He didn't have to put out another hit. <laughs> yeah, that was that was part of the the introduction, the foreword I read uh, was the fact that like yeah, like because it went through his other accomplishments, and then like the person writing the foreword was. But <laughs> everyone knows him because of this book, because <laughs> it made him rich. <laughs> One interesting thing about him is that he swore up and down that he did not have a life philosophy or a need to organize its progression. And he said that his books are not constructed to say anything. Which, um, I don't know if I would agree with his own assessment there, because Chapter 22 says a lot. I think I think by virtue, I, I I can totally believe that there's some that those writers who are like not necessarily writing for a message, but mm-hmm. I think that 
by just the sheer virtue of storytelling, there's always going to be a message. Because you can't have a story without a message. And yeah, so I, agree. I think whether he's consciously writing on it or, it or not, it's always coming from what he thinks. And like you just don't want to put he just never wants to put a label on it, which I totally get. Like that I view I I'm that way with politics. Like I don't I don't have a political ph- philosophical thought. Like I just say what I believe is right and then people can label that whatever and i feel like that's probably his strategy for writing is like these are my thoughts i'm going to put it in a creative story and then the messages that people get from there are just what they get yeah it's hard to write 500 plus or 500 some pages uh about anything without saying anything yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i do i do agree that like maybe he was like not at like yeah intentionally or like overtly trying to express some sort of message like i totally get that when like i'm writing like a joke or something and if you but if you write, if you write enough jokes within the same frame they're eventually <laughs> gonna start like having some similarities that, like, yeah, like, read as a message. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that that was, like, his own belief, though. Not a lot of writers would claim that they're not trying to say anything. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Later on, he taught at Yale, NYU, and the City College of New York, so he, in between writing books, was a professor. At one point, he contracted, I don't know how to say this, he contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome in 1982, um... That's something like a deathbed level illness, I believe. But he did end up making a full recovery, so he was able to write about that experience in a a memoir called No Laughing Matter. Mm -hmm. And during that time when he was sick, he had a few friends that visited him, including Mel Brooks, who you guys might know as a director. (laughs) (laughs) Might. Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, Dustin Hoffman, who is an actor, and George Mandel, who is an author. So he uh, he had a lot of famous friends, a lot of funny guy friends, a lot of talented writer friends. It's pretty impressive. And he didn't stop writing until he died in 1999 of a heart attack. So this guy had a very full life being a writer and impacting a lot of other people. Yeah. It was pretty impressive. And it's cool. We had a little bit of overlap in being alive with him, which is kind of weird to think about since it's such like a historical book. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it feels like a really old book from something way before <laughs> our time. The conception of this book started in 1953. He thought of the first line. It was love at first sight. The first time he saw the chaplain, Yossarian fell madly in love with him. That was all he had. <laughs> he didn't have this anti-war thing. He didn't he wasn't like, this is going to be a war story. All he had was, this guy sees a chaplain, and he falls in love with him, and then he just goes from there. And, that's, <laughs> and his name's Yosemite. <laughs> <laughs> that's apparently his writing style for all of his books. He comes up with, like, the first and last line, I believe, and then fills it all out afterwards. <laughs> Originally titled Catch 18, they had to change that. <laughs> They changed that to avoid confusion with another novel coming out at a similar time called <laughs> Mila 18. I wasn't doing a market test thing where it's like, if we up it by four, <laughs> it's going to really affect our bottom line. <laughs> um, and one last interesting fact about the book was that it was accused of plagiarizing another novel called The Sky is a Lonely Place in Britain or Face of a Hero in the U.S., um, and it was accused of plagiarism because they both had similar plots about the war and uh, bomber pilot. And this other novel was published two years before. 
Peller swore that he had never heard of this book before, <laughs> before the plagiarism accusations hit. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I believe him since he was a World War II pilot. Like, I feel like that was what he was drawing from. He needed to copy someone else. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like just by virtue of how the book is written, that like... I mean, I obviously haven't read this other book, so it's all, it's all, I can't make a judgment call there, but it's, if, if he did plagiarize it, he at least did it really greatly. <laughs> he did Nothing else is the plagiarism act, uh, accusation is a good marketing stunt, because I might read this book now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. see. Just how similar it is. I feel like, unless that other book is also completely, like, not in order and all over the place, there's no way it can, there's no way he plagiarized it the main character's <laughs> name is yosari and then like I'll, I'll, be, I'll be like okay yeah probably yeah probably i wonder if there was like a small boost in the name yosarian for newborns <laughs> i really hope not Dude, there must have been because people are like naming their kids hermione now like, that's fair yeah yeah <laughs> um so the reception of this book at the time some critics called it the best american novel in years and others called it disorganized, unreadable, <laughs> and crass. So it was really all over the place, but I, I kind of picture it as it being just a little bit ahead of its time. What do you guys think? I don't understand how you can read that book and then criticize it as, like, disorganized because it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Like, like that's that's it's, that's a weird criticism for me. I, uh, um, I also wonder if, like, going through the cold war and still like at that time like world war ii was probably still everyone was still reeling and being like, like there's still so many effects of it that making such light of it was seen offensively i wonder if that's like a part of it um because i, I still just think that disorganized one is hilarious <laughs> I, I think that's so funny that someone would read that book and then be like that's that's the problem with it if this book was in order It'd be a lot better. <laughs> yeah, for a book that <laughs> for a book that's like so set in history, yeah, I imagine the historical context of like when the book was released like matters like a whole hell of a lot when it comes to like the reception to it, which uh, admittedly I'm not very familiar with. Yeah, I think maybe the out of order complaints could be an argument of like, hey, I get why it's out of order. That doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> I can, I completely get that criticism. Yeah, <laughs> like, fail. totally. That's what a lot of. Uh, it sounds like a lot of my friends uh, in 10th grade, when we had to read uh, The Stranger by Camus, everyone was like, yeah, I understand it's supposed to be absurd, but the book still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is fine. I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment of a bunch of 15-year-olds, especially now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I had to read that, too. We had to read that book in the same summer reading session that we read this book. Mm -hmm. These are heavy books to read when you're... Really, kind of terrible books to read. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, like you need to like be a, a little more eased into it. I uh, think <laughs> honestly, my book. The only reason I did choose this book, I mean, my I said it to my dad. He was like, "Oh, this is a really good book. You should read it." And I did, but mm -hmm. like the biggest reason was it was it was the list I got was chronologically, and so you could <laughs> read like Charles Dickens, and then like this was the last on the list, and I think <laughs> really? I had to, I think I had to read like three, so I just chose the last three. Because I was like, I have the best chance of understanding this. Right, that like, yeah. that's interesting. That is interesting. They didn't have many uh, recent books on your list. No, they didn't. My my school system was very much about teaching the old ones, which I which I always thought was a fault because there's so many good books from the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. and, and 60s. There's so many good ones that like 
it, I feel like it was just like such a critical time of just like the nation kind of questioning where are we going and like with the cold war it's like the whole everything was so uncertain that i think that bred mm-hmm. a certain type of books at the time that were just very all very interesting and yeah there was definitely a, a big boon of literature after world war ii as most wars tend to spur like world war one like post world war one like huge sperms like poetry like where modernism or modernity like first started like getting its wheels so I definitely agree. <laughs> Anytime you pick a time period right after a very significant world event, you'll probably find some interesting reads. Yeah, facts. Cool. That's interesting that they made you read such old books, but I guess ours must have been old, too, if we picked... These. Yeah, I can't remember what the other ones they uh, recommended us reading. It would be interesting for me to try and dig that up sometime, just for my own purposes. <laughs> but uh, I do I do want to see what was alongside Catch-22 for the books like I could choose to read. Yeah. I know, yeah. I wonder... Do you still talk to any kids from Sun Valley? <laughs> yeah, I do, plenty. That are, that are in Sun Valley? Oh, they're in Sun Valley? No, zero. <laughs> That's probably for the best. I, yeah, for <laughs> a laundry list of reasons. <laughs> I don't talk to high schoolers. <laughs> yeah, in my head, I was like, are you going to start my high school? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you're still talking to people from your high school? <laughs> well, some people have siblings. I don't know. That's true. That's fair. I would give you that. (laughs) If I had, if I did have a sibling that was like five years younger than me, I probably would still know people from high school. So that's fair. Um, so it's interesting. Like this book came out in 1961, so that is not very recent at all. (laughs) A couple generations away from us. The last book I did for this podcast came out in 2014. So if people mm. want to use my podcast as their summer reading list, they'll have at least a nice spread. <laughs> <laughs> awesome diversity. Um, Are they all about the same length? <laughs> or is there going to be like one favorite that everyone picks because this, it's like 20 pages? <laughs> this is, um, so Catch-22 was what, almost 400 pages? This one's almost 200 pages. This is short. That's <laughs> well, there Annihilation. You go. That's you what Annihilation, I would pick. <laughs> Annihilate, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. If you, want to, if you want to see an okay movie. I'll have to check right. out the previous episode of your podcast to get the full scoop. <laughs> Boy, of course you should. Everyone should. <laughs> so the sequel to this book uh, called Closing Time came out in 1994, which was a year after I was born. Where is that in relation to when you guys were born? It's two years before. A year before I was born. You guys are young. You guys are so young. <laughs> so... There's a lot of time between this book and its sequel. I don't know a lot about the sequel, except that Yosarian shows up for a little bit of it, and that it's not quite written as weirdly, and also that it's a little bit sadder, I think. Mm. That's just so much time in between stuff. Do you guys yeah, think... Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it was, I, was, I was really surprised when you said 1994. Yeah, I didn't know it was written that far after. I knew there was a sequel. I, I haven't read it, but... I'm very surprised by the release date. <laughs> yeah, so what is that, 33 years? 33 years. Uh, 61 yeah. to 94, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a long time. Do you think he wrote it because people kept talking about Catch-22 and he was like, fine, I'll do one more <laughs> I have to imagine. I don't think you wait like 33 years if you have like a good idea for a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> like, Especially since the reception was so meh. Like, I imagine he just put this out because people wouldn't leave me alone. But... <laughs> yeah. I can definitely see that. He should have just like rebooted it, just like rewrote it, but in chronological order, <laughs> <laughs> and then fans for years to come would just argue over it. Which one's better? <laughs> if he made a director's cut of a book, that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump into the movie now. 
So it sounds like you guys were, it sounds like Garrett, you were the most disappointed by this movie. And Tyler, you had, would you say positive feelings about it or? Uh, I, I definitely had positive feelings. I, I had both positive and negative feelings, but um, I feel like the movie hit some marks. Yeah, that's how I felt. I liked beats of it. I didn't like having to like watch it straight through. <laughs> like as an experience, I was like, this isn't this isn't a great thing to have to watch. <laughs> but, like I loved bits of it, and I loved things they were doing or at least trying to do. So mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. You guys have any other overall thoughts about the movie? I think my biggest point, my biggest source of disappointment for it was, one, like, my emotional connection to the book and how much I loved it, and then I just felt like every strength of the book was the movie's weakness. I felt like the ensemble of characters became, in the book, very interesting, in the movie, I don't really care about any of them, the chronological order in the book, which draws me in in the movie pushed me out because it, we were saying all you like the bits of it and like kind of like the skits within it mm-hmm. and like i i agree with that but that doesn't make a whole movie mm-hmm. and so it was just so disjointed and it's and yeah it's, it was just like, like all the things i liked about the book the dark humor doesn't come off nearly as well in the mm. movie as it does in the book and yeah, so it's just it like <laughs> yeah it's just not like i'm just like are you joking yeah i can't tell and yeah, a lot of times when it's supposed to be like a dark punchline it's just dark it's yeah it's just like it just doesn't make you laugh at all <laughs> because it, cause they don't build up to it like honestly for a lot of them and part of that is because like the movie's trying to be a movie it, it can't mm. fit all the setups to the jokes yeah. and i feel like they didn't do a good job of picking which storylines they mm. wanted to follow like the whole Milo thing, like in the move in the movie, I was just like, Milo for me is not a funny character at all in the movie. He's just an asshole. Like yeah. it's just everything he does, I'm just like, Oh my god. Like you're endangering everyone. Right. And like in the and like obviously he's that way in the book, but in the book it comes off so much more that like, oh, okay, like He's he's supposed to be this like capitalist business yeah. guy, and it's yeah. funny. Yeah, in the book it's like it's completely clear he's like a satire of a capitalist, and yeah. they, they have like they have like one scene in the movie that like demonstrates that, but it comes like pretty far after like you meet him, like it's the scene where he, the the. Uh, the chocolate covered cotton. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, people eat cotton candy all the time. This is the genuine article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a bit I like. That was a, yeah. That, yeah. And one of my, one of the things I love about the movie, which I guess comes from just any book being translated into a movie, was I think it was, re- it was just really cool seeing like some of the scenes just like being translated to picture. Like I loved the conversation between uh, Milo and uh, Cathcart in the very beginning where they're just shouting over each other over the planes flying over and you just don't get that in the book at all like that's not yeah. and, and listening to the audio version too like i didn't get that at all because it's just narration so it was really cool and also pretty funny when the plane just crashes like right <laughs> ahead of them. oh yeah that was a i thought that was a, a nice touch so we'll throw that fun fact in here i have a list of fun facts so i'll just <laughs> shout at you in a little bit but that plane, they really crashed that plane. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of, it looked like they did because in the movie, when, when like an explosion went off, like, didn't the dude just had just fly off? Like, there was actually, wasn't there like actually a shockwave behind them? When, oh, yeah. That, yeah. They crashed that plane. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, they paid so much money to crash that plane. <laughs> so, well, they got a whole bunch of bombers and then they got one additional Hulk plane that was made, it was like barely functioning. So they made it just able to fly, and then they crashed it. <laughs> oh, and the, 
husk of that plane is still buried in New Mexico today. Wow. So you can visit it. <laughs> like the true Catch-22 fans, that's their method. <laughs> that's their <laughs> cool. So uh, we went into our overall thoughts about this. This movie was directed by Mike Nichols, who is probably most famous for directing The Graduate. Mm. Um, he also more recently did Charlie Wilson's War. I think he's dead now. But yeah, so he actually has a huge background in like comedy. So I think that's a pretty good choice of director yeah. mm-hmm. directing this movie. And like as much as I wasn't a huge fan of it and was disappointed by it, like I said before, it's like from the Lidos to the Delectos to the cast, like huge pops because like it's not like they did a bad, awful job. It's not like they ruined it. And it's just like it was such an endeavor going into it. And I think that they just the biggest mistake was just not making it more concise. I think a big a big thing I learned in film school was in my writing for the short class, and like I thought it was really interesting was he was like as far as like death of story and the information you can like get out of it. The number one is like novel that's the most death. Then it goes like novelette, and then feature film, and that and he and my teacher was like the equivalent of a feature film is like a short story. As far as, like, depth of themes and stuff and how much you can get into a point. And he was, like, he was like adapting a whole novel is hard. And, mm-hmm. like, to do that, you basically have to take the aspects of the novel you like, picture it as a short story, and then make that into your script. Because you're not going to be able to get the whole novel. Like, you can't be trying to track every subplot and being trying to get every one of those in the movie because it's just too much information. And the problem with this movie is you need the whole novel. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't make this into a short story. You need all of it for it for its absurdist, dark comedy to come out. And it's just hard. It's just hard to translate that. Yeah, as far as from what I wanted from the movie, I really kind of wish they just kind of thematically butchered everything. Like, just kind of, like, stripped <laughs> it of its, like, actual spirit and just presented it like a comedy, which I thought is what they were going for in the beginning when they were just jumping, uh, jumping from conversation to conversation. Like, what, I was very surprised that they included Major, Major, Major because he's not really that, like, pivotal of a character in the book. And I was just like, oh, are we actually just going to have, like, basically, like, this compilation of just, like, so- short sketches? Like, I I was actually pretty excited about that. Me too. And for a bit, that's what we got. But then also, like, the book, it, like, transitioned from short sketches, kind of like how the book presents it, into, like, the more chronological, like, dark themes toward the end. And I kind of wish they strayed away from that. They just kind of focused more on the... Or at least if you're not if you're not gonna focus on the comedy of it like how I wish it did focus more on the actual like like theme of it and right. try to chop some of those like if you're trying to keep it like thematically the same you probably shouldn't have the major major scene in there yeah <laughs> yeah it really seems like they kind of had like one foot in one foot out of like both trying to get the themes across and trying to have this weird comedy aspect mm-hmm. although it does work like in the moment very well like I love when they recreated Dreedle's scene when he comes in and orders Danby to be killed. For one, there was a really <laughs> funny scene where, uh, like, Dreedle's like, who is this? And then Cathcart goes, Danby. And then Korn leans over his shoulder and goes, D-A-N-B-Y, Danby. <laughs> like, I thought that was hilarious. I thought it was delivered very well. And also just the fact that, like, when... <laughs> 
when Dambi's being dragged away, <laughs> Cathcart kind of, like, keeps going on, like, boisterously, like, in a joking matter. But you hear, like, Dambi, like, whimper and, like, kind of, like, cry. And, you, <laughs> and you're like, oh, jeez. <laughs> and, like, I feel like that, like, moments like that, like, the book was captured more in, like, a moment like that than it was throughout, like, the plotting of the movie, I yeah. guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it helps that you can do, like, funny background events and stuff like that with film that you might not be able to do with a book. Mm-hmm. This movie currently has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is really high, but mm-hmm. uh, at the time it was not like much of a success at all with <laughs> critics or with audiences. MASH came out at the same time, which is also... Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tough crowd. <laughs> so, uh, they were kind of rival films, and one of them won. <laughs> and also... My note just says the plot seemed to confuse viewers. So that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah like. <laughs> it's like if you take any 10 minutes of that film, it's like really good. It was well directed, yeah. well acted, well, like, well, as we talked about, they spent shit ton of money. So, like, well, <laughs> like, like, set deck is great. But, like, then you stitch all t- those 10 minute sections together mm-hmm. and you just don't get anything really mm-hmm. you, it doesn't come out which is funny going back to joseph hello not wanting a message for right. his movie <laughs> for his books and me saying a message is necessary for your storytelling no matter if it's meaningful or not because i feel like the movie didn't have a message <laughs> and i feel like that's why it's confusing to yeah. so many people yeah, i wonder if hello watched this movie and he was just like oh perfect this makes way less sense <laughs> 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 i don't even know what's going on <laughs> According to the DVD commentary, the director said that Joseph Heller loved some of the changes and wishes he had thought of those things himself. Mm. So I think there were specific bits that Heller was really impressed with. Yeah. Mm. This movie was written by Buck Henry, who also wrote The Graduate, so he has been a frequent collaborator with Mike Nichols, and he has a background in comedy as well. He was he hosted Saturday Night Live 12 times. So they got some funny got guys to work on this movie. That's, that was my thing when they were the, doing the opening credits. I mean, like for a movie that like I knew existed, but never, especially as a film major, never had anyone talk about. Like the amount of stars in it. Like I and I didn't even know until now it was written by the graduate writer uh, and directed by the graduate director. Because I had it pulled up. It's like it's Alan Arkin, Art Garfunkel, Orson Welles, which I was like, what? <laughs> Anthony Perkins, Bob Newhart, like Martin Sheen, I think, and it's like insane, like the amount of like I didn't, I didn't realize how much was in was going into this movie. And you were talking about how expensive the planes were and stuff. <laughs> and I remember looking, and I looked it up because I it was during the scene of the bombing of the base that I was like, holy shit, this movie must have cost a lot of money because <laughs> yeah. those look like actual explosions <laughs> and stuff. And I looked it up and like. If you like price inflate, it's like 128 million or something in today's dollars that this thing had a budget of, and it's that's insane to me because I, that a movie put that much behind it, and today no one really talks about it or yeah. knows about it. I was also very blindsided by the budget. Yeah, I was I was impressed by yeah just the, the actual like effects of the movie, which it's all those airplanes. It's just it's just so many airplanes. Like right in the beginning, there's just like ten airplanes. It's like oh Jesus. Yeah, when when Mick Watt kills in the movie, it's Hungry Joe. Right. Um, when he kill, kills him and his body, like 
the, the torso just goes and the legs just flop over off the little laugh thing. I was like, <laughs> oh my god! I was like, this was 1970? Yeah. Like, that was like a today effect. That, that wasn't even like, you didn't even look cheesy or anything. It was so real. I was, yeah. I remember watching that and being like, oh my God. Which really actually gave me a lot of hope for the uh, the end scene with Snowden because I was really worried about how that would be handled in the movie. I didn't know how much like money would be going into the budget for the gore aspect of it, which is a really big deal in the book. And yeah. I didn't know if they were they were gonna like play like kind of gloss over that or if it was gonna look terrible. But like, yeah, it looked really. I, I thought it looked fine. Yeah, but, like, it, yeah, I thought it looked good. I yeah. think. I mean, as I said, and cinematography in that movie too was really good. It was it like they had a lot of. I don't even think I don't even think the Steadicam was invented back then. I should know this when the Steadicam was invented. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, there was there was scenes that like look. It's obviously a dolly, it, um, like like if you think about it. But like the flowing shots through some of these conversations and like going yeah, into okay. and out of, yeah, you know, I was really impressed with how technically great it was for the time it was made. That's the part of the movie I thought was handled best, uh, translating the book, was those conversations being, like, framed in an interesting, like, yeah. scene being carried out, like, when uh, Dreadle is, like, driving in the little cart while the two colonels jog alongside him. Like, that was really <laughs> I fun to that. watch, yeah. I, I, and I think uh, the my one, my one of my favorite conversations in the book, which I love in the movie, too, is when you're saying, and saying that the Germans are shooting at him. He's yes, like, he's, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's just a, like, they're shooting, he's, he's like, they're trying to kill me, and I who is it? And I think it may be... In the book, it was Clevenger, I believe. In yeah. the movie, it there was... There wasn't a Clevenger character. There was not a Clevenger. Yeah, that, which I was surprised yeah. about, because he was such a foil yeah, to Yosarian yeah. that I figured he would be in the movie, and he yeah. wasn't. They definitely grouped a lot of characters together, which, yeah. honestly, for the best. Like, it, yeah, it, it, exactly. I wouldn't want like, the huge cast of characters in the novel to be directly lifted into the movie. <laughs> yeah, no it'd, be, it'd be impossible. Yeah. I think it was... Uh, Oh, what's his name? Dobbs or Dobbs? No. It might have been. Oh no, 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 no! It was uh, was Nately? Nately, yeah, yeah, it was Nately. Yeah, yeah. I'm and pretty he, sure it was Nately. And he's talking to Nately, and he's he's just like like, like they're shooting at me, and he's like they're shooting at all of us. And he's like, yeah, but that's me. Yeah. <laughs> he's like he's like they're still shooting at me, yeah. and like I I love that in the in the in the movie because it's conveyed in like a big mess hall and everyone's this mm-hmm. yeah, chattel yeah. everywhere and people are like surrounding him and Milo comes and he like kisses him on the cheek and he's like don't worry about it and it's just like <laughs> like that was a really fun environment to have mm-hmm. that conversation because Yusarian's having this like deep philosophical like they are trying to kill me and everyone's just like we're at war like of course they are <laughs> yeah so this movie you guys mentioned a lot of stuff <laughs> that you thought was cool I have backstory on a lot of the things you brought up so, one, the cool flowiness of the, like, one takes they have. This movie has one of the longest oneers in history. Wow. Um, oh, and for that oneer, it involves planes taking off and then flying into a building, and the characters walking into the building, the camera follows them, and then you actually see the planes through the window. So they had to reshoot that scene multiple times, and every time the planes had to go back to the beginning and take <laughs> off again. So that's part of why it had such a budget. <laughs> <laughs> that alone, yeah, that alone must have cost so much money. How many hours did you say that they like had of the fifteen hundred hours? Yeah. So that was another thing. They planned to film the key flying scenes for six weeks, but it ended up taking six months, resulting in the bombers flying about fifteen hundred hours, and they appear on screen for approximately ten minutes. <laughs> it's just like who's. 
uh, who on production was like so insistent on those planes? <laughs> like, was it the director? Was it a producer? Who was just like, we need these planes for this movie to make sense? <laughs> exactly. Honestly, I wasn't like coming into this movie being like, can't wait to see those planes. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite part of Catch Twenty Two. I mean, it was nice to see them, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, it, once again, being a movie made in the nineteen seventies and like seeing it nowadays, I went into it kind of being like. Okay, like some of the effects aren't gonna hold up and stuff, but they all do because they're all real. So it's like, so that that aspect's really cool. But it's like, did you need it? <laughs> well, part of its legacy today, like if you go on YouTube and type in Catch Twenty Two, a bunch of what they have on there, the clips that these people on the internet have chosen to take from the movie, are just it's just plain shots. They're just, that's like, awesome. opening plane shots of Catch-22. <laughs> and, like, that type of thing, military plane porn, is such, like, a... It is such a big thing in cinema. Like, it's Michael Bay's bread and butter. Right. And yeah. There are people who love that stuff. Yeah, I don't get it, but case, <laughs> it's for someone. You mentioned that Orson Welles is in the movie and that you were surprised by that. Yeah, I was shocked. He tried to get the rights to this movie and mm, did not wow. succeed. And his consolation was getting to play Dreadle. Um, I wonder what an Orson Welles Catch-22 would be like <laughs> Probably pretty cool and weird Yeah <laughs> He was really great as Dreadle too He was he did, I he, loved he, him as Dreadle <laughs> he, pulled it, he pulled it off great And that is like He played it in such an Orson Welles way mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. not It's not played as much Like that in the book I feel I, feel, I agree I feel it's more I don't know what the word for it I feel But Orson Welles delivers like Such like a thematic key like like big character yeah. and it's so vicious so vicious <laughs> it's so he plays it exactly like Orson Welles would <laughs> and like like I he, he was good at it I, everyone was good at it it's like yeah. it's funny because for me it's like I'm saying I'm disappointed I didn't like the movie and then I'm naming all these things that I like so I view it as the individual parts which I appreciate and then it's like you tr- they try to tie them together and it's just like mm-hmm. they yeah. cut it it's just like not the sum of its parts, or less than the sum. Yeah, of its parts. exactly. Yeah. Facts. Partic- um, particularly the opening part, I really disliked. I hated that they uh, opened with uh, <laughs> your Sarian being stabbed. I, I yeah, completely despise really that. Yeah, <laughs> all these other like starting points of a book that's not in order that they could have started from, and they chose that one. Yeah, I know from the book it's supposed to be Nate Lee's Hall, but I felt like in the movie that was yeah, it was so confused. Was it supposed? It wasn't. Uh, yeah, it really wasn't supposed to be. I thought it was supposed to be in the movie. Still, see, that's the problem. None of yeah. us know. <laughs> like <laughs> we, know. like it doesn't. They just is like okay, he stabbed at the beginning, and I'm like okay, they're gonna reveal that to be Nate Lee's Hall, mm-hmm. and then they never do. Yeah, they, they never really whole running off. They might have said it in the end scene when like he's in the hospital, but I don't think they did. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so either. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame because, like, uh, that's like a pretty funny bit in the book where she's yeah, just she, this yeah. woman that just continually tries to stab yeah. him. <laughs> it's it's like... one of the last, like, absurd jokes in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where she's just, like, always there with a potato peeler, like, trying to, <laughs> trying to kill him. Like, <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because um, in, in the movie it ends with, like, he's running away and she's, and, um, and the chaplain says jump and he jumps over yeah. the thing. And in the book he's like, he says duck, and he like looks back. He's like, "What?" And they're both like duck, and then he ducks, and Nate Lee's whore is there trying to kill him. <laughs> so it's literally yeah. the last gag in the book. Yeah. Is Nate Lee's whore. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
You guys mentioned, one of you mentioned that Art Garfunkel is in this movie, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I was like, <laughs> what? I didn't know that he acted until I saw this movie. But um, Paul Simon was also supposed to be in the film of Simon and Garfunkel, but his character was written out. But also, more interestingly, more interestingly, the film prevented Art Garfunkel from making it back to New York in time to record harmonies for Bridge Over Troubled Water. Which made Paul Simon so mad that he wrote a song about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, this movie might have broken up that duo. <laughs> <laughs> this was the reason. Wow. <laughs> um, this film has no original music score, so that's another interesting fact. You mentioned that you were worried about how they were going to do the Snowden scene. Mm-hmm. Snowden's costume had like several pounds of awful which is just this fake stuff that you use to make things. So in addition to, like, his regular costume, he had, like, seven pounds or so of stuff attached to him that spilled mm-hmm. out during that scene. Right. And then as for, I guess, what we kind of think is the money shot of the film, Hungry Joe's death, this, <laughs> this was a two-setup rig here. First, a plane hits a dummy that's rigged to spray blood. Then an actor in front of the sky... Holds a mirror in front of the sky to make it look like oh his God. body's not there, but his legs uh, are there, so then he falls into the water. So it's a very complex, wow. practical type of effect. Yeah, it was... I Once again, I was shocked when that happened in the movie. I was like, I was like, oh my God. I mean, I guess that's like... In the book, I was shocked too, so I guess that's like a good delivery. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that, but the, like, that was my other thing in the... In the uh, in the book, it's Kid Samson, right? Yeah, yes. guys. Yeah, yes. and in, and in, and in the book, it's like it was that happens like that's like one of the false deaths of the dark part of the book, mm-hmm. and it's like like in the and so when that happens in the book, it's like oh my god, it's like like right. why did this happen? Like they just needlessly killed this guy off, like <laughs> wow. And then in the movie, it's just I was shocked by the by the practicality of the effects. But besides that, it's just like there's no re- and Hungry yeah. Joe's not even talked about. He wasn't even. Yeah, a that's, that's the funniest part. They changed it from Kid Samson to Hungry Joe, and it's like Hungry Joe wasn't even in the movie anyway. <laughs> yeah, just easily have made it Kid Samson. You like, didn't have to yeah. do that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, in the movie, in the book, Hungry Joe, his cat sleeps on his face, right? Yeah, it's that's how <laughs> that he gets smothered yeah. by the cat, and it's like the cat that he hated throughout the whole novel. <laughs> he he swears gonna kill him, and, and like it's such an absurd and it's such an absurd way to die <laughs> and it's like like yeah that was that's just a weird moment it's like i don't it was I, weird i don't understand why they should it's going back to like the parts they chose for the book right. from the book to put in and it's like why was that one yeah you pump so much money into this big like action shot where like it looks great but like what i really liked about the moment in the book was that like yeah this guy got like obliterated in half but he's just as dead as dr nika on paper, but like Doctor Nick is still like walking around and he's yeah. fine, like you know. And I, I thought that it's a, it's a funny and also kind of like you know like pretty dark moment. And it just you don't get any of that because it's literally just a he might as well be a dummy getting hit by a plane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah fact. it was so weird because right after he gets hit, one of the characters asks Yosarian, "Who was that?" And Yosarian's just like. Hungry Joe. I was like, who was Hungry Joe? Yeah, I thought that, I was was like, did did they introduce Hungry Joe? Did I miss that part? And, and, yeah, and Yosarian still literally doing that whole thing. That was probably my biggest, Yosarian honestly was probably one of my bigger problems with the movie, the actor, (laughs) because, and I was saying this before, that I feel like this was a movie 
that was ahead of its time in the long ways. Because I feel <laughs> like the humor would be so good today. The quick witticisms back and forth would be like so much, so much well done today. Yeah, much more played up. And back then, it was so. It's like it's they will they will let like okay, don't play it up at all. Act exactly as you would at mm-hmm. being a soldier in the World War Two, but just say these lines. Mm-hmm. And it and it and so like Yosarian's character who in the book is always just like. like always has a retort, always, even if it doesn't make sense to everyone, he always has his philosophical thought that he says back, and it's always quick, and it's always funny, and in this, it's like, he delivers them slowly, and he kinda just seems like a dude that's out of his element, more mm-hmm. so than someone tr- desperately trying yeah, to Yeah, more escape. so than, like, a coward. Like, yeah. I mean, that's what I really loved about Yusari in the book, that he, he really was just this guy who feared for his life for 400 pages and yeah. uh and yeah the Yosarian in the movie was just kind of like a guy just a guy who's just in over his head yeah exactly <laughs> which is just like any movie protagonist which is a little disappointing to see translated <laughs> yeah i think in addition to like his dialogue just being a little bit slow the movie dragged in a lot of places when they could mm-hmm. use that time to do so many other things from the book mm-hmm. his his relationship with the nurse was another thing that was like in the movie, not important to <laughs> yeah. anything at all. And in the book, it's like, that's his one, that's like his oasis of being like, mm-hmm. like she, and it's so funny because in the book, she like really doesn't give a shit that much about him. Right. Like she like is like, like, this is also just kind of fun for me. And in the movie, it's like, the, is there an emotional connection? Mm-hmm. There's never a payoff for that connection, but it's like, they'll definitely try to build. I mean, they have the scene where he's trying to like undress her as she like talks about like, like wanting to be like the one or whatever. But like, besides that, there's just no payoff. There's just so many scenes where there's no stakes, no payoff. And they just put it there because it was in the book. Mm-hmm. And and the book did such a good job of just tying everything in and being like, Hey, remember that the whole chapter two that made no sense at all? <laughs> now we're in chapter 28. Okay, let's explain that. <laughs> that is such a tough thing for a movie to have to try and do. <laughs> sure. Here's more facts. Not all of these are fun. <laughs> Second unit director John Jordan died because he refused to wear a harness during a bomber scene and fell 4,000 feet out of plane. So this is one of those <laughs> 1970s... <Jesus>. <laughs> Somebody dies movies. <laughs> Dude, falling out of a plane. If we pointed a camera in the right direction, it'd be a snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that, I, dude, this is completely unrelated to anything we're talking about, but falling 4,000 feet would be such a shitty way, because the whole time you're falling, you're just like, oh my god. <laughs> I could have worn the heart. <laughs> <laughs> you have so long to think about all the mistakes that led to this point. Yeah. You have such a long time to really just Really, namely the one mistake that led to this point, <laughs> which was not wearing a harness. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't hear this. <laughs> I.P. second unit director. <laughs> you asked who on the production was asking for all these plans. Well, I found my note on it. <laughs> Mike Nichols, the director, okay. wanted 36 B-25 planes, but he only got 17. <laughs> Dude, imagine being upset with 17 planes. <laughs> like, oh just being like, wow. You only got me 17. Can we imagine this madman writing a list of demands for this movie about comedy? (laughs) Or supposedly a comedy where he's just like, 50 planes. (laughs) I want 30, 100 bombs. (laughs) So he had 17 of these B-25s and then one plane to crash into the ground. 
That's so many planes. Yeah, one of the planes we're gonna throw away. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever even see seventeen planes together? I mean, I guess actually during the maybe towards the beginning. Towards yeah, the that beginning opening scene alone it. was just yeah, like that's so many planes. <laughs> I, just, I was actually like I've never seen like a like a I don't know what you even call it like a squadron or a fleet like take off like yeah. that. And I was just like oh jeez. Yeah. <laughs> if I was into planes, like I would. Yeah. Have been <laughs> I agree. Unfortunately, to the untrained eye, it looks like a bunch of planes taking off, <laughs> which honestly isn't that impressive in itself. <laughs> even though I'm sure it was very difficult to do, and very costly. There's one scene in this movie where Major Major is complaining about his promotion and saying that he doesn't want to see anyone in his office. Mm -hmm. That's basically the last time we see him. But he's pacing around his office, and he walks past a photo of FDR. The camera follows him. He walks back, and it's now Winston Churchill. He walks away, and then he comes back, and then it's Joseph Stalin. <laughs> oh, man. That's a, <laughs> that's a background gag. <laughs> sure yeah, that's... That that's no payoff. It's <laughs> a lot of walk with no payoff. That's the thing. Like it's just an interesting fact that's on the Wikipedia page, but there's no explanation for it. Um, I think maybe it shows like the passage of time that he was pacing around complaining, or it could just be just another absurdist gag. I, I think it's know. just like an equivalent to world leaders of like. It just in general. I think it's just yeah. like a vague statement or a vague joke, I would say. I would say I would call it more a joke than a actual, like, you know, very smart, like, <laughs> declaration. I think that's pretty much all I have for fun facts and production notes for this. Let's move on to the future of this property. So, it's getting turned into a six-episode miniseries on Hulu. I'm going to do this game now. It's a new segment for when new adaptations are coming out. It's called Fan Casting. Where you guys pick who you would want to play certain characters. We're not going to go over the entire cast of characters. There's too many. Yeah, I wonder how many they'll introduce. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the other thing. We'll get into like how with six episodes, they can do a lot more with this story than they can right. do yeah. in movie. But like, who would you want to play Yosarian? Who would you want to play Or? Who would you want to play Dreadle? Nately? You asked me this even before we started, and I still haven't even. <laughs> I've uh, had some preparation for this question. I'm being blindsided here. Yeah, I meant to email you guys. <laughs> hmm. I don't want to be like super cliche, but like I would love if Nately was like a really meek type, like a uh, like Eisenberg Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> like someone who's really like. <laughs> I think I think Michael Sale in a war movie would be hilarious. Yeah, I would love I to think see that. I would love that. I would. That's that's a really. I love the scene with a with an air, uh, the fucking air, like uh, the headset on and just <laughs> behind yeah. like, the controls of a plane. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see him doing those interactions with like the Nate Lee Swore character and with the old man character because mm -hmm. then he has to like toughen up a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think if it would be a really good Yosarian. It would need to be someone who's like a good like who's been in some like a dramedy type thing right i actually think eisenberg jesse eisenberg could be a good yosarian yeah he's got that snappiness but also like that manicness where i think he could be a coward that also gives good one-liners if brian cranston lost a lot of years real quick like he could probably be a good yosarian if he I, just decided to anti-age for <laughs> i, I was thinking i i was thinking the same thing for all i was thinking like a whoever whoever was the equivalent of like a young like steve buscemi is okay. because like he's in the book he's so like just like a weird dude and it's just because Bush Emmy looks weird, <laughs> if we're being completely honest. But, like, he, it just needs to be someone who's just, like, 
kind of like <laughs> conniving, but like in a in a non-aggressive way, like just kind of like always in the background. I'm trying to think of who could be a Cathcart because I wasn't like too happy with the Cathcart in the movie, but I'm not actually sure what I'm looking for in a Cathcart. I loved Corn. I thought Corn was great. I thought he Corn was... did. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. I think maybe uh, for Cathcart, it would be like I would want someone who's a little more. Not like fat and pudgy and old mm-hmm. man gone by, but right. someone who's like a lo- who like has like a good stature and someone who like is a tough guy. Honestly, like who's also kind of just like this like intellectual snob too. Yeah, like, at the same time, like he was this very like yeah like Ivy or Get Out like kind of mindset, which I feel like I would like to see more because that was a very interesting thing to see like a colonel be like this like yeah. you know like the sweater tied around your neck like kind of like douche <laughs> I, th- I think maybe for Kafgott or anyone any of the blast leadership in the movie and this is just because I love it Michael Fassbender <laughs> who's got a really great comedic side if he wants to show it like in Glorious Bastards and mm-hmm. Frank he's in both of them he has this like he's definitely in Glorious Bastards less so but like he still has like a comedy edge to him mm-hmm. but that's just hidden under this like super mean tough guy demeanor right. and i think for like a cathcart that would be a really good one because mm-hmm. he would be able to like be super serious the whole time and no one would really say anything about it but then also <laughs> if he like says these bobs or like is like callous and is like i don't care like it would be super believable and he could say it in a funny way mm-hmm. it's funny because now for casting nowadays it's like back then it was like they were all late twenties to like middle aged like white dudes who just like got there through just like they all seemed aged. Like Nately was the only actor in that who, right, was, who seemed like, who seemed like young. Yeah. And everyone else seemed a little too old for me. Mm-hmm. I agree. Alan Arkin was I think like ten years older than Yosarian character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that I definitely I thought Yosarian <laughs> I thought Yosarian was I thought he was too way too old to play Yosarian. Yeah. Which is just part of the part of the problem you come with, but when you write, when you write really young people into these roles, yeah. like that, I mean, anyone who read Game of Thrones first and then watched the show can probably attest to that. Where it's just like, well, these people are supposed to be fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can't. Obviously, obviously, <laughs> you can't. Obviously, obviously, apples to oranges. <laughs> um, I hope Alan Arkin doesn't listen to this. <laughs> he did a good job, I promise. Um, <laughs> you walked with what you had. Um, we're telling him he was too old and he can stop. Yeah, I wonder if he got better. <laughs> Honestly, I think this is another actor. I, Brad Pitt could play anyone in that, That's and fair, I and yeah. I'd be really happy with it. He's yeah. so funny. Like if like when he chooses to be, he's so funny, and he and he has a good and he has a good look for being like a soldier during World War Two. I think he's still young enough that he could pull off. He's played most a World of War II soldier like. Yeah, at this oh, point, yeah. he knows it. He's got it down fat. One of his wheelhouses at this point. <laughs> how about for Milo? Uh, Milo. See, like, I like how Milo was portrayed in the movie uh, insofar as just... I just wish he was less of a dick. I just wish he was, like, funnier. I wish they gave him more scenes yeah. where he was just funny. I'm trying to think of someone who could, like, who could pull that off. Man, I wish I was better with actors. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I wish I had emailed you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have any thoughts for... For Milo. I'm trying to think of like young charismatic actors working today. So <laughs> Practically none. <laughs> That's a Tom Holland in there. Just <laughs> I don't think you would be a good <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> Give me a good Nately. 
Yeah, I can see that for really sure. <laughs> it would be a really good name. Old kids have to. Even Snowden. <laughs> even Snowden. It would be a great Snowden. Yeah. I, I really wish the Snowden in the movie was younger, because that was like a really big thing in the book. Like, how just, young like, he is. Yeah, he's just a kid. <laughs> and he doesn't sound like a kid is the biggest part. You could get some... I think... It would be fine if you got someone who looked a little older, as long as he still sounded, like, yeah. younger. But, yeah, he, he sounded, like, even older than, like, he looked. Oh, uh, what's his name? Loki. Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. I think he could be a Milo because, just, based, just based off Thor Ragnarok, he definitely has that, like, he has that, like, comedy side to him that he would be good at, like, be making the jokes and, mm-hmm. like, they would come off believably, and he's just got a punchable face. Yeah, like, exactly. That's what I was going to say. He's <laughs> definitely got that look where he's like, oh, yeah, you're the world's biggest capitalist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, like, he, like I definitely think he'd be a good one, actually. <laughs> that is now a really some, good one. Now, something about Bull. I think Tom Hiddleston would be great because, like, he's he plays super fucking annoying characters. <laughs> um, and he plays, like, a trickster, which is exactly what Milo really is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, All right, so we've got our Milo. <laughs> <laughs> we got one. <laughs> We need a Yosarian that we're sure of. I'm going to say Michael Sarah is Nately. So, <laughs> right. I'm good with that. So we got two. <laughs> we need a Yosarian and a Cap card still. Also, Colonel Corn in the movie, fun fact, was played by Buck Henry, the writer of the movie. Oh, oh cool. <laughs> did a really good job. Yeah, did great. <laughs> I really um, enjoyed him. <laughs> he knew what he was looking for. And <laughs> he was it. Yeah, Yosarian's tough. Yosarian, because he, he's so... You need someone who's like, what's the word? You need someone who is cowardly, like you said. Yeah. But also really likable. Yeah, but, but like, and when I um, when I was in the older version, like the voice very much like reminded me of like just a dopey ope. I got like very like Fred Flintstone vibes. Yeah. For, like, yeah. For, no. Yeah. For Yosarian, very dopey which... guy. <laughs> Who's still young? It's a hard role to find for someone who's like young, because usually that guy's played by like a someone who's like pretty old. Like you know, it's like a that's like a sitcom dad, like Tim, <laughs> Tim Allen. That's what I'm in there. I would hate Tim Allen. Full, full Uh, John Goodman. Oh, that'd be good. Mm-hmm. He'd be great. I think as any of the higher up people. Yeah, yeah. As, as any of the generals. He's 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 definitely obviously he's a funny actor, but like, do you see a uh, uh, Cloverfield Lane? Ten Cloverfield yeah. Lane. Yeah, he's definitely got that like sinisterness to him mm-hmm. that he can carry for that. I think he, I think he'd be he'd be a good job. He'd be a good one. Main I feel character. bad for giving the actor so much grief. Apparently, it's a hard role to test. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Apologies to Alan Arkin. <laughs> We've insulted you many a time this podcast. <laughs> if you're still listening at this point, <laughs> I hope this moment gives you some sort of reprieve. <laughs> if you could, like, can you think of someone who was, like, maybe too old now, but, like, if you could reverse time, maybe it would be able to slot in for it? I think, like, a, like a young Seth Rogen might actually work. Which I know it might be a little... <laughs> That's a little, controversial. Uh, very controversial. <laughs> I, That's all I'm saying. I don't think it's a... It's a. It would be a widely held opinion, but I, I would like to see him kind of like sputter about being killed. <laughs> I think he would be good at that. I was thinking a young Jason Bateman. I don't think this is necessarily in his wheelhouse, but I think he could. I could see that. I think it. it's in his range. How about? I, I, I could agree. Wyatt Reynolds. I think he would do a good job. I yeah, think he. I think he'd be good. That's a good one. Yeah. Deadpool guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what about Deadpool? <laughs> he's, good at, he's good at being like cowardly. Yeah. And funny. Yeah. yeah. And oafish, but mm-hmm. also being like young looking. <laughs> I literally just searched actors in their forties, and now I'm just going through them. 
I would kind of like Hannibal Burris as Yostarian. <laughs> oh, <laughs> actually, yeah. Oh, that would be <laughs> like, really funny. Instead of being, like, quick and snappy with his cowardness, it, he would be like, man, <laughs> I'm not going to do it <laughs> He's so fun to watch. I would love that. He would be so, like, like, he'd be reflective, much more reflective on what everyone says. Like, he'd always have, like, a comedic pause. And then yeah, for like, sure. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I think we've got I think we cast. got it. I think That's I'm happy bad. with That's that. That's not so bad. It's Hannibal Burris as Yosarian. It's John Goodman as Capcart. It is Michael Sarah as Nate Lee. And uh, Tom Hiddleston as Milo. What a cast. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched this six times. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, any hopes you guys have for this uh, Hulu series that's coming out? Since it seems like we were all a little disappointed in the movie, at least in terms of its ability to adapt the book. Making it, because I'm going to guess each episode is going to be an hour. So, six hours, probably like six and a half because the season finale. So, like, you just get so much more time to, to be able to flesh it out. And, like, I think that's the key. I think... I'm looking forward to it. I didn't know it existed until you told me about it, and now I'm looking very much forward to it, because I think that they can do a really good job, because like I said, I think that the movie was a movie that was ahead of its time in not good ways, but now this is the time. Like, this, the quick witticisms, the, everyone, starting with Memento, every, the non-chronological order movie has just blown up. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's a concept people can understand, because that's my thing, is is, is is if you watch this movie in 1970, like, I have to imagine, based off my pretty limited film knowledge, that this is the first, like, completely non-chronological, just, like, big-budget movie that people would go see, and it just, I can see people not understanding it and mm-hmm. not making sense because they hadn't seen something like it before, but now we're in an age where there is, and there's tons of them, and, of all, and a lot of them are very successful because of it. <laughs> um, and so I feel like combined with like the tone and the style that it can be done really well and I'm really looking forward to it. I think the biggest challenge for them is going to be what the movie's biggest challenge was and just choosing the things you actually want to go after. Right, yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to think about that just like this big budget movie where people are probably like kind of like hard to swallow it at the time just cuz it was different. I wonder I wonder if this is like the inception of the time where people are like, "No, nah, it sucked." It's like, "No, you just didn't get it." <laughs> <laughs> It's actually really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was more familiar with Hulu originals. I don't know if they're any good. Uh, People talk about The Handmaid's Tale. I love The Handmaid's Tale. That's a, that's a Hulu original? Yeah. <laughs> no. I didn't know that. <laughs> that, that. That is a fantastic show. Man, I didn't know that at all. I thought that was, I don't know, something else. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that just the just the structure of like an episodic uh, miniseries just lends itself way more to this disjointed mm-hmm. like narrative structure. I think actually, if you look, at, anyone at home could follow along if you can spell Wikipedia. If you Wikipedia catch twenty two, <laughs> I believe this. And under the synopsis, it divides the book into six sections. <laughs> so okay, uh, really? Might, might, yeah, might, that's okay. Cool. Might lend itself to a six episode series. That's what like, I was. If you tackle it from that way, that's what I was thinking. Is like each. I wonder if they're going to do like within each episode. There's going to be multiple, or if it's going to be like each one is the storyline mm-hmm. that they tie together on the last episode, which then kind of loses it a little. But it's it's so hard to be like, it's going to be, I can imagine it's going to be good or bad because like 
the source material I think is amazing, and the mm-hmm. movie did an okay job at it, and that was 1970. So that gives <laughs> right. so that gives me high hopes for a Hulu original yeah. in 2018 doing well. But yeah, it's, it's it's a tough job writing a script, writing a, six scripts for that. Yeah, movie, I, it's tough. I agree, but talking about that actually does have me a little excited. I, th- I think it actually kind of lends itself to the to the format. You know, you, yeah. could, you could divide it like that, and every episode you could have that allusion to uh, Snowden's death. It, it's it, I think it could actually work. If like each episode starts with like Snow, I like, yeah, like it's yeah exactly yeah that that would be. It's good. It's now. I'm very much looking forward to it. The more, the more, the more we talk to talk about it, me too. I'm looking for a Here's release your... date. There is none, so ah. yeah, a little bit of a wait ahead of us. Um, but cool. All right. So that's everything I have. I think we've made our feelings about the book and the movie and this upcoming adaptation very clear. So now's the part where you guys get to plug anything you're working on. So Garrett, you can start. Uh, so I am just a film major, so I'm just trying to get my start by making stuff. Right now, I am working on a short film, which will be completed by the end of August. It has a, doesn't have a title yet. By the time everyone hears this, I'll throw a link, I'll have Jason throw a link in the description for that. Uh, my other big thing right now is that I am starting pre-production on my senior film which I am putting a lot more time and effort into. So me and Jason were talking about it. There might be an indigo for it that would also appeal here. So if, uh, you know, you're feeling generous. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll make sure to make that public as soon as it as it's done. That's months and months and months away. But yeah, that's all mostly for me right now. Awesome. Um, most of my creative products are forever suspended in the, <laughs> in the not concrete yet phase. Relatable. Uh, <laughs> I do have a YouTube channel that my friend runs that I star in. Uh, <laughs> we have two videos up right now, 11 subscribers. You can get in underneath <laughs> this before everyone else does, and you can flex about it. Uh, it's called The Boys. Uh, there's two videos on. The one I'm in is me playing my friend Steve in Worms Battlegrounds, and we were both a little drunk when we did. And the other <laughs> one is a speed run for WWF No Mercy for the Nintendo 64. So if... You're into Catch-22 and video game playthroughs. <laughs> I suggest you go there for that content. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming today. This was a really fun yeah, episode. this is great. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. put in that Yeah, game. exactly. Like, it's insane how good they did. Thanks for listening to this episode of Page to Frame. I'm happy to announce that this is also our first sponsored episode. Page to Frame is now brought to you by Tuckins, the delicious inside-out treat. Tuckins are inside-out s'mores with the marshmallow on the outside and the chocolate and graham crackers on the inside, all attached to a stick for optimal roasting. You guys, these things are delicious. Do you love s'mores but hate all the s'mores making mess? Then you'll love Tuckins, the fun and easy way to make s'mores snacks. You can go to Tuckins.com, that's T-U-C-K hyphen I-N-S dot com, and use the promo code page to frame that's page 2 as in the number 2, and then frame, to get 15% off your first order of Tuckins. As for me, I'm now a contributing editor at Malarkey Books. Malarkey is a literary outlet that hosts high-quality writing from writers of all backgrounds. So that's been a really fun project to work on, and I'd love if you guys checked out our website at malarkeyweb.com. There's a lot of great stuff over there from some fun and talented people. So that's it. Thank you again for listening.